You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. My name is Rob. I want to join uh, Craig's voice in welcoming you at home this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, if you have ever heard the phrase or if somebody's ever tried to convince you that something is undeniable, they might use the phrase, the writing is on the wall. It's undeniable. It's obvious to everybody. If you've ever tried to convince somebody of your argument, maybe you said, hey, the writing is on the wall. Well, that phrase comes from uh, the story that we're going to read together today from Daniel chapter 5. For in Daniel chapter 5, God literally writes something on the wall for the people there to see that is obvious and clear to everybody in the room. And through this passage, I believe that God wants to communicate something to us that is undeniable and obvious and clear. So what I'm going to do is kind of read through the story. I'm going to give some commentary along the way and then share a few ways that this applies to us. So if you can toggle over or turn over to Daniel chapter 5, and while you're turning, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started in it. God, we thank you for your word that is clear and speaks words of truth to us, Lord. And we thank you that your truth sets free and error and confusion binds us up, but your word is clear and always leads us in the right way. So Lord, we submit ourselves under it now and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and speak to us today through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Okay, so you'll see right there in Daniel chapter five, if you're there, uh, this, the chapter starts in verse 1 with King Belshazzar. Do you see that? Verse 1 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. King Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you'll remember from last week, Nebuchadnezzar was this king who at a very high point of his reign was brought very, very low. And he was afflicted like an animal and, and literally went insane and crazy for a moment in his life until he acknowledged God as king and then God restored him back to uh, a really prominent place. Well, uh, King Belshazzar is the son or grandson of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. And here, all we know of Belshazzar uh, is that he makes a great feast. Where Nebuchadnezzar uh, made an empire, uh, uh, Belshazzar is uh, creating this great exclusive thousand-member feast. It's the party of all parties Belshazzar is throwing. One commentator said, the former built an empire, the latter threw a party. That's what Belshazzar is doing. He is living off the wealth of his father and grandfather. He's living off of their reputation. And the only thing he is contributing to the family legacy is this party, this thousand-member party. Now, this party is an exclusive party, and it's the place that everybody wants to be. Well, in verse 2, we see what happens next. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought and that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, 
And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. So notice, they took some holy and sacred vessels that were used to worship the one true God and brought them into the party. And verse 4 says, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. So you need to really picture what's happening here. Belshazzar is reversing what his father had done. He uses the objects of worship of the one true God of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, and uses these objects to worship false gods. He praises and leads thousand people to praise the gods of gold and the gods of silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. One person said of Belshazzar, Belshazzar was not just a drunken slob, but a profane slob. He's profaning the things of God in this soiree, in this party that he is throwing to all of his guests that he cares uh, a lot about. Well, uh, the party is going as parties go, but everybody in the room sobers up in verse 5. Notice what happens. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So it's a picture of total fright and fear. He is scared to death. Uh, that phrase, his knees knocked together in Aramaic, uh, can literally be translated, the knots of his joints were loosened, which has led Hebrew scholars, more than one Hebrew scholars, to go on record to say that that actually means he lost control of his bodily functions. Kids, do I have your attention now? He lost control of his bodily functions. He was so scared and so terrified of what he is seeing go down. Now, if you think that's no big deal, just imagine you're in your living room right now and a large hand and fingers just shows up right above the fireplace or wherever, that wall next to you. It just shows up and starts to write something on the wall. It, it was terrifying to them and it would be terrifying for this to happen to us. Well, the king in his, in his fear in verse seven calls loudly to bring in the enchanters the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. He brings in the best of the best. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So his color changes twice. At, at the, the, the first time at the sight of this hand, the second time when the best of his best cannot tell him what it is that's written on the wall. Well, the queen comes in in verse 10 with a solution. 
the queen, because of the words of the king and of his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. The queen says, I know a guy. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let this Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So the queen has a solution. It's Daniel. Daniel was used by your father to interpret things of the past and was a great blessing to the empire, which begs the question, how myopic and short-sighted is Belshazzar? Why is Daniel— if he's calling a thousand nobles to an exclusive feast, why is Daniel not a part of the feast? Why is he just a side character in his imagination? He never even considered Daniel. The queen has to remind Belshazzar about Daniel's reputation. Well, in verse 13, the king brings him in. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. If it sounds a little bit like he's throwing shade, he is. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, what drives Belshazzar? What drives Belshazzar is the very thing that he is offering Daniel. Celebrity, money, and power. And that's what is driving everybody in this exclusive party. And so Belshazzar simply offers to Daniel what he has lived for his entire life. Well, in verse 17, Daniel doesn't take the bait. Notice he says, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept 
alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So Daniel just reminds Belshazzar of this incredible story of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he goes on in verse 22 and says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Note that word. He knew all of this had happened. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Here it is, Belshazzar. Mean, mean, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mean, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so that's what he tells Belshazzar. Literally, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. All that you have lived for is now coming to a crashing halt. You've been weighed and been found wanting, and your kingdom is coming to an end. It's going to be divided. It's striking, and it's terrifying, and it's the conclusion of everything that Belshazzar has lived for. And look what happens in verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he would be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar made good on his promise to Daniel. Daniel gave him the words, and Belshazzar gave him the stuff. And then God made good on his promise. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Just like that, everything ended. In two verses, everything is done with Belshazzar's kingdom. And I know that we're at home today, and we can just ask the question, what in the world does this story have to do with me? I'm no king, and I'm certainly no prophet, 
Well, consider that you may not be a king or a prophet, but we are like the guests at the party. You see, I believe that we are invited to feast at the table of insanity every single day. Remember that Belshazzar throws a great feast, a feast for a thousand of his lords, the most noble of the land. And he drank wine in front of a thousand. Now, the people that went to this exclusive party worked their whole life to be invited there. They gave of their time, their attention. They gave everything that they could to be invited and to be a part of this gathering, to be a part of Belshazzar's feast. And you better believe that the thousand people that were at this exclusive party would have taken Belshazzar's offer to Daniel in a second. And Belshazzar knew that. Belshazzar offers, hey, listen, Daniel, if you tell me the interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar says, I'm offering all of this to you. And that's what everybody in that party would have wanted. It's certainly what Belshazzar wanted all of his life. We are tempted today by our appearance, by status, by applause, by achievement and success, by money, each and every day. We chase after these things, and it is truly insanity. I love our city. I love Frisco. I love sports, and I love that our city is called Sports City USA. But it is not simply the love of athletic competition that moves and turns our city, but all the other things that potentially could come with it in terms of status and appearance and applause and celebrity and money every single day. And that's not just true of sports. It's also true of academics. It's also true of the arts and all kinds of things that just kind of moves things forward in our city. One person wrote that Belshazzar's feast is set before us every day and many around us are mortgaging their futures for an invitation to the ball. Are you at the feast of Belshazzar? Are you at the table of insanity? Do you want the invitation to the feast of insanity? You notice that they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and the gods of silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And they did all of that even while the armies of Persia camped outside the gate. They were oblivious to reality. One person wrote that Belshazzar's party is the ultimate act of folly. He was feasting on the brink of the grave and celebrating on the edge of extinction, and he never even knew it. That is insanity, is it not? To just be oblivious to reality, chasing after something that doesn't ever provide back. Belshazzar discovered, and all the thousand people in that room discovered, that their false gods will not save them, and our false gods will not save us either. 
In verse 15, the wise men, notice the wise men and the enchanters are brought in to read the writing and to make known its interpretation. But it says they could not do it. They called upon their gods and the gods didn't show up. The gods could not show the interpretation of the matter. In verse 23, Daniel knows the gods didn't show up and he says as much. He says, you praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. He says, there is one true and living God and you have You've searched for answers among the dead gods that do not know or see or hear or speak. You see, we are functional Belshazzars at times, looking to our gods, and they don't see, and they don't hear, and they don't know. You could be talking to a god, and that god is not going to talk back to you. You could be listening to your God of gold or your, your God of iron or your God of wood or your God of success or your God of achievement, and that God is not going to talk back to you. We promise these gods our time, and they do not care. They take and take and take, and listen, they will never give back. And maybe in this moment where everything's on pause, maybe this is truly a blessing from God. Maybe God wants to wake us up to the insanity. Maybe he wants us to say, I want you to push away from that feast. I want you to move away from that table of insanity. When that invitation comes, and I don't know when the, the wheels of the city are going to turn again, but they are going to turn. But whenever that happens, maybe we don't take the invitation next time that it's offered to us, and we push away from that feast of Belshazzar. Well, second, consider that in the midst of something so crazy and so insane, God shows up. And like the handwriting on the wall, God has come to us and he has spoken to us. In verse 5, it says, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. It was unexpected. It was uninvited. And yet God shows up behind locked doors of this exclusive gathering and appears. And the picture there is that there is no door that can lock him out. There is no physical place that can lock out his presence. And there is no human heart that is so opposed to God that he cannot break through the, the hardness of that heart and just show up and appear. And that's what happened in verse 5. Immediately, God appears and writes what he wants and communicates what he wants. Listen, God can suddenly appear in the most impossible place, in the most unlikely circumstances, in the place that seems like there's no way God uh, can show up in this place. God can appear when and where he wants. Do you remember the story of Doubting Thomas? He was, he was called Doubting Thomas because he so clearly communicated his doubts to everybody. Everybody was very clear on where Thomas was with the reports that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He said more than one time, listen, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He said, unless you show me these things, 
the door is locked. And I'm not going to believe. And I'm not going to trust. And I'm not going to hope. It says a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. And it says, though the doors were locked. The physical doors of the house were locked. And the doors of Thomas's faith was locked. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He suddenly appeared behind locked doors. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And in that moment, Thomas stopped doubting. And he hit his knees and he cried out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. That's what he says to Thomas. He says, see my hands, see them. You wanted to see them. Here they are. My resurrected hands, the hands that took the nails, see them. And he says to Thomas, now reach out your hands. We all like Belshazzar have sinned and been found, found wanting in the balances. We can't atone for our sins, but Jesus was weighed at the cross and found perfect for us. And the hand that wrote judgment on the wall that day also received nails of judgment on the cross. Our judgment, our sin, our penalty Jesus took in his hands. And that's the hands that he showed Thomas. The nail-scarred hands of Jesus reached out to Thomas and he said, look at my hands and reach out your hand. And that's a picture of faith. Reach out your hand means trust me. Put your faith in me. Stop putting your confidence in yourself, Thomas. Put your faith and trust in me. Have you put your faith in Jesus? He says, stop doubting and believe. He says, look at my nail-scarred hands and reach out your hand. You could be listening to this and watching this. And like Belshazzar, God is someone that you've heard about, but never put your faith in, never trusted wholeheartedly. And he's calling you to trust him. And you know, you could, you could say, like Thomas said that day, right where you are, my Lord and my God. That's a sinner's prayer if there ever was one. My Lord and my God. And you can communicate that to God right where you are. That's how Christians pray. Every day to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Well, lastly, like Belshazzar, if we do not respond to God for who he is, we are fools if we do not listen. Do you, know, you notice in verse 8, the beginning of the story, all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And the king is frantic. He's greatly alarmed. His color changes. His lords are perplexed. He's got to know what in the world is written. He's got to know what that, that, that word, what do, what do those words mean? He is frantic to know the truth. And then he hears the truth, but he doesn't do 
anything about it. Unlike his father Nebuchadnezzar, who responds to God, Belshazzar does nothing. In verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. He, when he finally got the answer that he was looking for, it didn't move him to respond. He didn't do anything about it. He did not trust God or repent. The, 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 the warning is a kind warning, somebody said, of what's happening here. And yet Belshazzar does not respond to the warning at all. He, he literally continues on not humbling his heart. Daniel said that. You've not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Just knowing about God, knowing the truth of God, doesn't, doesn't mean that we are obeying and humbling our heart and trusting in him. Jesus says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. That's what it means to hear and respond in faith, in trust of Jesus in this moment of our lives. It means that we are Putting, putting our house, building our house on a solid foundation that doesn't matter what's going on right now in terms of the flood and the streams. And I don't know all the streams that are breaking out against your house right now, but I do see the promise that Jesus says that your house cannot be shaken because it's well built if it's built on the foundation of Jesus. Nothing ultimate is gonna happen to the house of your life because it's well built on that foundation of Christ. You are safe in his hands. But Jesus also said, the one who hears and does not do them, does not respond, does not repent and turn to him, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, not if, but when, there's always going to be a stream that breaks out against us. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. That's the picture of Belshazzar. He didn't respond. He didn't turn. His, his ruin was great and well-known. He was known by the ruin of his life because his house, his life was not built on the foundation of God. He didn't trust God and didn't respond to God. And that's what God is calling us to do. So right where you are, let's respond in faith and in trust to him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.